As soon as the New Testament books were written by inspired men and written by hand, they were very quickly copied by Christians like you and me who wanted their own copy or were making a copy for somebody else. This continued for years and years, actually for hundreds of years, during which time we were at least intermittently persecuted. And then in the 4th century, the Roman Empire gave its official sanction to the Christian religion. And so a, the transmission of the text was given a new approach. This was a dramatic change that took place almost overnight. In 303 A.D., Diocletian declared that the scriptures should be burned wherever they were found. And just a very few years later, Constantine commissioned Eusebius to make 50 copies of the scriptures at government expense. By the time the government could have tried to control the copies, they were already all over the world. We'd been copying them for hundreds of years. They were in your attic and mine. They were in people's dresser drawers. The government could not have controlled it at this point, the Da Vinci Code notwithstanding, because there was no way to control it. They already existed everywhere. There was no way to get to them all and try to make them all say the same thing. Once the state church was established and Christianity was no longer illegal, commercial book manufacturers were established. They had rooms called scriptoria, which were very much like this room we're in right now. They had trained professional scribes sitting in the room listening to a lector. The lector would stand at the front of the room, much as I am doing now, and read the text of the New Testament. And all the scribes would simultaneously write down what he read. You could make as many copies at a time as you had scribes who could sit close enough to hear. The lector would read out, in the beginning was the word. All the scribes would write down, in the beginning was the word. But associated with that process would have been a tendency toward errors of hearing. What if somebody next to you coughed while the lector was reading? What if you got distracted by something? And what about homonyms, words that sound the same but have different meanings? That began to occur in the 4th century. And then in the 5th century, another significant change occurred. In a word, monasticism. Monasticism, uh, monasteries were built in out-of-the-way places around the countryside. The monks that lived there copied the scriptures. Typically, they would do this individually in their own cells. There was less pressure than in a scriptorium. But you had a whole new category of problem that was associated with an individual making copies by himself. In our day of printed books and copy machines, not many of us have ever even tried to make a handwritten copy of a book like the kings of Israel were supposed to do when they took office. But you may have copied something shorter like a letter or a quotation from a book. And you find that this is rather an involved process. First you have to read the line to yourself. Then you have to keep that line in your mind, and then you dictate it to yourself, either silently or aloud, and then you write it down. And then you go on to the next line. That leaves leeway for errors of the mind. There are also physiological type of errors, because copying is very arduous and taxing to the body. And sitting at a comfortable desk was not prominent at this particular point in history. Typically, these monks stood at a podium. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. Others sat on a stool or they sat on the ground with a scroll on their knees. That there were many opportunities for errors both of the body and the mind. 
What do we mean when we say that no two manuscripts are exactly alike? How do they differ? What kind of errors are we talking about? The skeptics take our admission that no two manuscripts were alike and they run with that and try to make it seem as though there's no way we can possibly ascertain what the New Testament read originally. That is simply not true. So let's look at a few of these errors so we can understand what we're talking about. First category is unintentional errors, errors that just happen accidentally. Some pertain to eyesight because some Greek letters looked alike just as some English letters look alike. In our cursive English language, an O and an A, small O, small A, can look a great deal the same. The letter I in English and the small letter L can look very much alike, depending on a person's handwriting. And don't forget, every copyist's handwriting would be a little different. So we have words like most and lost. They differ only in their initial consonant, but their meaning is very different from one another. We have words like comb, tomb, and bomb. These words are all alike except their initial consonant, and their meaning is very different. The word baked and naked are just the same except for the initial consonant. The meanings are radically different. And in the Greek language, the same thing was true. A Greek delta and lambda looked a lot alike. In Acts chapter 15, verse 40, that makes the difference between having chosen and having received. The sigma, the theta, and the omicron all look pretty similar. In 1 Timothy 3.16, that makes the difference between he who and God. And the manuscript evidence reflects this confusion. The two Greek letters, lambda and iota, together look very much like the single Greek letter, nu. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, that makes the difference between scarcely and really. In the Greek language, the gamma and the pi and the ta look a lot alike. 2 Peter 2.13 makes this a difference between deceptions and love feasts. When two lines in a manuscript end with the same word or phrase, such as in the Codus Vaticanus in John 17, verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them from the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. The phrase, them from thee, occurs twice in this verse. We have this principle because in every discipline there is a, a grammar, there is a vocabulary that develops this particular a word is called homeotolutin when a word is used to ref- it's a word used to refer to similar ending lines in a manuscript and paraglipsis means a looking by the side it has to do with the repetition of those kinds of expressions so when you have in John chapter 17 verse 15 you have it arranged so that the phrase them from the ends two lines in a row The copyist looks at the first line, he looks at his new copy, and he writes that down. Then he looks back at what he's copying, but instead of picking up where he left off, he drops down to the identical words in the next line, and the the words world, but that you should keep, would be omitted entirely from his manuscript. And the verse would read, I do not pray that you should take them from the evil one. Now when we look at that, even though there's no way for copies of that manuscript to recover those lost words, the fact that we have such a massive amount of manuscript evidence has enabled us to understand exactly what happened in that type of situation and many others that are similar. In the Codex Sinaiticus, the same thing occurred at Luke chapter 10, verse 32. Verse 31. Now, 
by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, likewise a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Verse 32 ends with the same verb as the previous sentence in verse 31. Passed by on the other side. Whoever was making the Codex Sinaiticus jumped from the first ending to the second ending and thereby left out everything in between. We have the same thing in Codex Alexandrinus in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2. The four Greek words omitted, uh, the, the four Greek words that, that are translated there, in the Lord, both in, in both, both verse 1 and verse 2, and the copyists make the same mistake. We see this happening all the time. It happens uh, sometimes in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, where the, we have a passage that's omitted in over 12 manuscripts. Two consecutive verses ending in, cannot be my disciple. Here's an interesting one, I think, in Acts 19.34 in Codex Vaticanus. The cry of the mob at Ephesus, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, is given twice. Now, the rest of the manuscript evidence suggests that when Luke wrote Acts, he only mentioned that cry once. This is called ditography because the scribe's eyes picked up the same words a second time. Also, two hours are mentioned in connection with that cry and maybe subconsciously influenced the scribe to duplicate the cry a second time. When we look at these kinds of textual variants, we soon see that the solutions to these differences are almost immediately detectable. We don't have much trouble figuring out what happened. It's not like it's a big mystery, and it's not hard to determine what the original reading was. But even if we weren't able to do that, no textual variant affects any doctrinal matter. And only one-tenth of one percent of the text is affected by these textual variants at all. We've looked at unintentional errors due to eyesight. Let's look for a moment at unintentional errors due to hearing while listening to a lecture. Different words can sound the same or very much the same, but have different spellings. The word great, G-R-E-A-T, and the word great, G-R-A-T-E, sound exactly the same. T-H-E-I-R and T-H-E-R-E sound the same. D-E-A-R and D-E-E-R sound the same. T-O, T-O-O, T-W-O, they all sound the same. We have vowels, diphthongs, and consonants that sounded very much alike. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the Greek letters omicron and omega apparently sounded alike. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have two Greek words there that sound alike, whether the O sound comes from the omega or the omicron, but it makes a difference between we have and let us have. This is the result of failing to understand which letter was intended by what was heard, probably in a scriptorium. There are many examples of this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, To him who loved us and washed us from our sin or loosed us from our sin. It depends on what the original sound really meant. The words washed and loosed or released sounded alike in the Greek language. We can see clearly how the confusion came about as a result of an auditory error, something that was heard. We have a lot of manuscripts and taking into account a number of factors, we can determine which one of those is right. In 1 Corinthians 15.54, the Greek word nikos is translated as victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. In a couple of manuscripts, we have the word nikos, which has an E in there that the, the word 
Nikos ordinarily does not have. And it's a different word. It sounds the same as the word for victory, but it really means conflict. Paul clearly wrote victory. Many of the errors conflict with the context itself, and the context is very telling. In Revelation 4, verse 3, there was a rainbow round about the, the throne. The word for rainbow sounds like the word for priest. In both Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus and others, we have the word for priest there. It's an error of the ears. Consonants often sound alike and can be confused. And we have uh, many, many examples of this type of thing. Uh, there are errors of the mind. If, if you try to copy what somebody else wrote, you soon realize that you are susceptible to errors of the mind. Just little mental lapses. Another error of the mind is varied word order. In Mark chapter 1, verse 5, the word order there can make it seem that everyone who came out to John the Baptist was baptized. Is this a serious problem? No. But those who have an agenda blow this type of thing up to something far more than it is and then make a lot of brash, broad statements about how we can't know the truth, which is simply not true. Errors of the mind can transpose letters. In Mark 14.65, the officers received him with blows. The transposition of two letters there has obscured the real meaning that the officers struck him, not received him with blows. Another error of the mind involves assimilation of wording. A scribe who is very familiar with the book of Luke, for example, he's making a copy of Matthew or Mark, and he's so familiar with the wording of Luke that he's liable to put the exact wording from Luke into Matthew or Mark where the same event is recorded. We have this in the epistles sometimes too, when you have rather parallel epistles like the Colossian letter and the Ephesian letter. In Colossians 1.14, through his blood isn't really there, but the exact phrase is used in the parallel in Ephesians 1 and 7 through his blood was assimilated into Colossians 1.14 from Ephesians 1.7. There was a scribe who put it into Colossians because he was so familiar with it in Ephesians. And it fit right exactly into that spot in Colossians. That's just an error of the mind. There were also errors in judgment. Let's say a scribe is making a copy and he finds something that he thinks needs to be commented on or needs to be corrected. He would often write it out in the margin of the copy he was making. Just a little comment or a little statement there. These are called glosses. They would be inserted in the margin or between the lines of a manuscript. And these marginal notes were sometimes taken to be actual portions of the text and were incorporated into the text of a new manuscript in order to avoid losing any part of God's Word. The scribe is thinking that maybe a note is supposed to be in the text. He doesn't want to leave it out if it is, and he's not sure about it. This may be what happened at John chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. The text is talking about an angel that will trouble the waters of Bethesda, and the authenticity of that is questioned. But how did it get in there in the first place? The unadorned text leaves people wondering why these people were laying around that pool. Maybe a scribe tried to give an explanation in the margin, and then a later scribe saw the marginal comment and put it into the text. In Romans 8, 8 verse 1, we have a phrase there, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. This probably was originally an explanatory note to define those who are in Christ Jesus taken from verse 4, because those words authentically occur in verse 4, but they've also been placed in verse 1. 
we can see these types of things over and over again, and they don't cause us very much trouble. I'll give you an extreme case of um, in, a, in a 14th century minuscule in the British Museum. In, it's on Luke chapter, thir- Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, which is the genealogy of Christ, Luke's genealogy of Christ. As you probably know, in most cases at least, manuscripts were written two columns per page. On one page, you had a column going down, and then you, you, after reading that column, you'd go to the second column on the page, just like you do in many of your Bibles. Uh, one scribe, the, the scribe from this particular 14th century minuscule, wrote the first line of the first column, and then he went to the first line of the second column, and he wrote that down in his copying. He must have been half asleep because he did this all the way down the page. The second line of the first column, and the second line of the second column. It's the genealogy of Christ that he's copying down here. And he's got everybody being the son of the wrong father. Instead of Adam being the son of God, he's got God being the son of Aram, and fairies being the source of the human race. Now that scribe was not trying to corrupt the text. He just made an unintentional error by not paying close enough attention, and it's an error that is immediately and easily identifiable. The solutions to these differences are detectable, and even if they weren't, they don't affect any doctrinal matter. Unintentional errors were made because of eyesight, because of hearing, because of mental lapses, and judgment errors. There's nothing subversive here. There's nothing difficult to sort out. But there were intentional errors as well. Now, by intentional, we don't necessarily mean subversive. Most scribes were very serious about their work. They loved the Word of God and wanted to get it right. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been copying it in the first place. But some of them thought that they were correcting previous errors and they thought that, that they thought had crept into the text. So they intentionally changed the text even though they did it with good motives. And these two, for the most part, can be sorted out. We can arrive at the truth about the changes. One category of intentional error has to do with spelling and grammar. Sometimes style-conscious scribes would make an adjustment in what they considered to be misspellings or what they deemed faulty syntax or poor grammar. They would adjust it thinking they were correcting a problem that needed to be fixed. There are also harmonistic corruptions. Scribal monks were very familiar with the scripture, knowing much of it by heart after having copied it for a long time, especially the portions that they regularly copied. They knew by heart. And they were tempted to harmonize the wording with parallel passages, even though from the hand of the inspired writing, there were differences between the two passages. For instance, in Luke chapter 23, verse 38, in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew that we have in in uh, Luke 23:38 many manuscripts have these words and yet there's evidence against them why would a scribe just add something like that it was likely introduced by a scribe who was very familiar with John chapter 19 verse 20 where those words are unquestionably authentic it was written in hebrew and latin and in greek The Holy Spirit apparently inspired John to make that statement, and it seems that the Holy Spirit did not inspire Luke to make that statement. It seems that the scribe who was making a copy of Luke was just so familiar with the wording of John on this point that he simply introduced those words into the text of Luke 23, 38. 
Another one in Acts chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The bulk of the manuscript evidence does not support that reading in Acts chapter 9. Where did it come from? Luke likely introduced it, uh, or Luke likely, uh, it, it was likely introduced from the writing of Luke by a scribe who was very familiar with Paul's conversion account in Acts 26, verse 14, where Paul does quote that statement by the Lord. The Lord did make that statement to Paul. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 26. We actually have three accounts of Paul's conversion in Acts, as you know, in chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. We don't get the whole thing in any one account. God wasn't obligated to give it all in one account. And so we have that statement by the Lord to Paul, but it apparently ought not to be in chapter 9. We have many of these that we could talk about, but I'm going to go on. Another type of intentional error was adding complementary material or adjuncts that were similar to that. Um, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners, quote, to repentance. To repentance is a textual variant there. I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners could end there and still make perfect sense. But it does sound like there's something missing. A scribe went to Luke 5.32 where the words to repentance do occur and then apparently added them to his copy of Matthew chapter 9. We have this happening. And over the many hundreds of years of copying, 1,300 years of copying we're talking about here, it seems like it happened a lot. Actually, these were very rare occurrences. Now, sometimes they tried to clear up historical or geographical difficulties. If a scribe came across something that he thought was historically or geographically inaccurate and he had a very high regard for the inspiration of the Bible, he was tempted to adjust the text to make it say what he thought was correct. In Mark chapter 1, verse 2, some of the very earliest manuscripts have the statement, it was as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Later manuscripts say, as it is written in the prophets, because the quotation is a composite from Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And the scribe would be aware of that, and not wanting to put... Isaiah into the text because it's not all from Isaiah. Some of it's from Malachi, and people will think that Mark didn't know that, and they'll think that Mark wasn't inspired. So we've got to fix it. Well, scribes, and you and I either, should not jump to conclusions based on our ignorance. It was standard Hebrew custom to assign composite citations and multiple listings to the more prominent prophet that was involved. The original writers knew what they were doing, the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing, and their readers, the early readers, understood what was being done. There was no need for a scribe to tamper with the text thinking that he was correcting it. He should have let it remain as he found it and just let the Bible be the Bible. What did the inspired author write? That's what we ought to be seeking for, not how can I fix it to make it so it seems right to me. In John 1.28, in the early manuscripts, they, they refer to the town of Bethany. Later manuscripts refer to Bethabara instead. What happened? Well, one of the so-called fathers, Origen, changed Bethany to Bethabara because he thought there was a geographical difficulty in existence there. Once again, he should have left it as he found it in the earlier text. Another intentional change that scribes made in the manuscripts is known as conflation. Let's say that a scribe is not copying from one manuscript, but he's copying from two or more manuscripts. He's uh, 
he's blessed to have an abundance of manuscripts. So he's got two or more of them, and to be sure that he's making his new copy as accurate as it can be when he finds the manuscripts he's copying differ from one another. He was concerned about selecting the wrong reading and omitting the genuine reading, so typically he would include both readings rather than chance omitting the true reading. That's called conflation. Example, in Luke 24, verse 53, some early manuscripts say continually in the temple praising God. Other early manuscripts say continually in the temple blessing God. Later scribes decided that the safest course would be conflation in the temple praising and blessing God. Now, even if we were unable to tell whether the earliest reading was praising or blessing. There's no difference in terms of our impact here, the impact on our understanding of what God wants us to know. And this is the nature of textual criticism, dealing with these minute variances that occur and trying to get them right. In Acts 20.28, Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in many early manuscripts read, Church of God. In other early manuscripts, it's Church of the Lord. Later manuscripts, Church of the Lord and God. It's a classic case of conflation. So there were intentional errors, errors of spelling and grammar, harmonistic corruptions, adding natural compliments and other adjuncts like that, clearing up supposedly historical or geographical difficulties, and there was conflation. But there's another kind of intentional change that was sometimes made, and that was doctrinal alterations. This did sometimes happen. There were disagreements sometimes which led scribes to adjust the text in favor of a particular viewpoint. Now, some might think, and to listen to the popular press these days, you might think that the majority of the differences in the manuscript would come from this kind of problem somebody making a change to support their point of view. Really surprisingly, though, there's very, very little of this in the mass of the manuscript. Part of the reason there was very little of it is because when you're copying manuscripts, there's always a paper trail. Just as when you spend money through checking or a credit card, there's always a paper trail or an electronic trail. It's very easily traceable. When you put something in a manuscript, somebody is free to ask you, anybody is free to ask you, well, where would that come from? Or why did you omit that? This, we've, we've had occasion to see how that kind of pressure being brought to bear on people has caused them to do various things. There were relatively few doctrinal changes made, but there were some, and there were two types. Either the scribe wanted to eliminate or alter something he deemed to be doctrinally unacceptable, or he wanted to introduce something to support a doctrinal viewpoint. Once again, these are not difficult to identify. We can easily sort them out, and we can easily understand what happened. Give you an example or two here. In in that day, in in Matthew chapter twenty four, verse thirty six, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. The best manuscripts here include nor the Son after the angels of heaven. Why was that phrase dropped? in some manuscripts. It was omitted by scribes who could not reconcile Jesus' ignorance with his divinity. Mark chapter 13, verse 31 has it anyway, and there it's absolutely unquestionable. The, nor the Son. The, the Son doesn't know when the world's going to end, Jesus said. The fact that the Bible tells us nor the Son there is not a translation issue, it's not a transmission issue, it's just an interpretation issue. You have to understand the Bible, you have to study the Bible and decide in what sense, at least temporarily, the Son did not know the day or the hour. 
Here's an interesting one, I think. In Luke chapter 2, verse 43, some manuscripts change his parents, talking about Jesus' parents, they change his parents to Joseph and Mary, or Joseph and his mother. The manuscript evidence shows that the true reading is his parents. Why would somebody change it from his parents to Joseph and his mother? They didn't want to refer to Joseph as Jesus' parent because they wanted to protect the doctrine of the virgin birth. But referring to Joseph as Jesus' father doesn't endanger in any way the teaching about the virgin birth. If you adopt a child, you are the parent of that child. Not physically, but in a very real sense. And ten verses earlier, in Luke 2.33, some manuscripts change his father to Joseph. They didn't want the word father to be there because Joseph was not physically and genetically the father of Jesus. But altering the text was never necessary and it was never right. The text of the Bible has nothing to fear. We don't need to fix it. We just need to find out what it truly is. In Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 10, verse 30, Mark chapter 9, 29, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, numerous manuscripts insert fasting into those. The best manuscript evidence supports the exclusion, the exclusion of the word fasting there. Well, how did fasting get in there? We mentioned the construction of monasteries a little while ago. There was a very fashionable movement for a while at a certain point in the early centuries. And the ascetic movement said that you should deny the body. You should even whip the body. These references to fasting seem to have been added by ascetic monks to promote the popular fad of fasting at the time. They assigned to fasting an unbiblical role. There's plenty of fasting in the Bible. It has a legitimate role in our lives today. There are over a hundred legitimate references to fasting in the text. But nobody uninspired had any right to add more. So these are the kinds of errors that occur in the manuscripts. Unintentional errors of vision, mental lapses, hearing, judgment lapses, and intentional errors where scribes made adjustments because they saw a misspelling or poor grammar or they wanted to harmonize different passages or fill them out to have the scribes um, mentioning the, the along with the Pharisees when that wasn't there in the original text. We see a, a lot of this type of thing. They would change the text to clear up perceived historical or geographical problems. They would conflate by placing two different readings in because they didn't want to lose the original and they weren't sure which reading it was. And there were also a few doctrinal alterations. Uh, just a few of that kind of thing. The, the kinds of variations that we have existing in the manuscript evidence are identifiable, they are detectable, they are discernible. There's no mystery about this. The vast majority of textual variants involve very minor matters, and the rest, the rest entirely, do not affect any doctrinal matter. Do we have the New Testament? Yes. Has the Bible been corrupted? No. And let me quote to you as I get ready to conclude here. Let me quote to you from men who spent their entire lives studying these matters. Sir Frederick Kenyon died in 1952. He was a widely respected biblical and classical scholar. He wrote the Bible in archaeology and many other books. Frederick Kenyon said, both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. When they gathered all the manuscript evidence together and they studied it, we were able to say with firmness, we've got the New Testament. It's authentic and it has the same integrity that it had from the beginning. F.F. F. Bruce, another scholar, died in 1990. I don't have time to run through his credentials, but he wrote over 40 books, many of them dealing with these matters. In his book, the New Testament documents are there reliable. Surveying a lot of this kind of information, he said, 
the variant readings about which any doubt remains among the textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. J.W. McGarvey in Evidences of Christianity said, All the authority and value possessed by these books when they were first written belong to them still. Westcott and Hort, I quote again, they've been criticized a lot. They came up with some theories about what textual approach should be taken to the Bible. Their views have been discarded today by everybody, I think, and by at least most of who study these issues today. But whatever disagreements we may have with Westcott and Hort about their philosophy of translation and their ideas about text families and the weighing of the value of certain types of text, that's irrelevant regarding the extent to which they were familiar with the Greek and with the Greek text of the New Testament of it in terms of the manuscript tradition. Westcott and Hort were two men who ate, drank, slept, and breathed New Testament Greek. They knew it far better than you and I know the English language. Their main production in 1881 called the New Testament in the Original Greek. And at that time that they were putting that out, this was the premier Greek text. Here's what Westcott and Hort had to say about it. The amount of what can in any sense be called substantial variation is but a small fraction of the whole residuary variation and can hardly form more than a thousandth part of the entire text. There is, since there is some reason to suspect that an exaggerated impression prevails as to the extent of possible textual corruption in the New Testament, we desire to make it clear, clearly understood beforehand how much of the New Testament stands in no need of a textual critic's labors. In the words, in our opinion, still subject to doubt, can hardly amount to more than a thousandth part of the whole New Testament. They're saying they can confidently affirm that we have at least 999 thousandths of the original Greek text. But what about that remaining 1,000? We know exactly what those passages are. We know exactly what the variant readings of them are. And they don't affect doctrine at all. There's nothing at stake here regarding what God wants us to know about how to be a Christian and how to get to heaven. How do we distinguish between textual variants? I don't really have time to discuss that, but I noticed the last couple of meetings, the final speaker kind of went over a bit anyway. So I don't know how much of that's permissible, but since I've already done it a little bit. There's two, two basic areas here when we try to make these decisions. There is external evidence and there's internal evidence. You look at the date, you look at where the manuscript was found, uh, what is its geographical locations. If you have ten manuscripts that read a certain way and you only have five manuscripts that read another way, you can be tempted to think that the ten manuscripts must be right because the majority should rule. But if you find that the ten that agree all came from the same place, they're probably copies of each other. But if the five that agree on another reading all come from different places, like North Africa and Palestine and Europe, they represent a diverse geographical area and are more likely to be given some weight then. So there are all these kinds of considerations that are external. Uh, also uh, looking at various families of manuscripts. We can make a family tree of manuscripts, which I won't take the time to go into. The internal evidence, you look at context, you look uh, for the most difficult reading, which is sometimes preferred because it would be less likely to be there. Shorter re readings are preferred because scribes tended to embellish and to add over time, uh, except in cases of parablepsis or homeotelutin where they're skipping something inadvertently. There, you, uh, Take the scribal tendencies into account. Look at the style and the vocabulary of the author 
of the book. Look at other things that were written by that author if, if we have them in the New Testament. Look at the immediate context. Look at what the inspired writer wrote in other things that he wrote and the influence of the Christian community on the transmission of the passage. I mentioned the popularity of fasting influencing the text for a while. None of these criteria by itself is necessarily foolproof, but there is a cumulative weight of this kind of evidence when it's brought to bear and when it's taken into account as many strands of evidence as possible. I believe that the most effective way to reassure a person that the Bible has not been corrupted in transmission is to just walk a person through this resolution process for specific textual variants. Now, that's not easy. It's a very tedious process, but anybody can do it if they care. We can do this even though we're unfamiliar with Greek. We can do this even though we don't know the sophisticated jargon that the textual critics have generated. If you can understand the stock quotes that run across the bottom of the screen on the news, if you can understand how to overhaul an engine, you can easily understand the apparatus of a book that is written about these issues and understand exactly which manuscripts what is in. You can understand enough to think through these issues. This is not brain surgery by any means. You can understand how to follow the process of sorting through the manuscript evidence, and we've never had so many helps available as we have today. Walking through, a, through it in, on any text gives us a feel for what's going on there, and then it doesn't seem mysterious anymore. Part of the problem we have in our Bible studies is somebody will say, well, my translation says this, and yours says that, and we leave it there, and nobody knows what to do at that point. But we can know what to do if we care enough. We can prove it to ourselves and to anybody else who will talk with us that the Bible has not been corrupted in transmission. We can understand the flow of things. Suitable solutions to the differences are detectable, and even when they aren't, the original reading is one of the options. When we're trying to decide between two different readings, we know that one or the other is right. It's not as if the original is completely lost. We're dealing with two alternatives, but they're not two alternatives, neither one of which is God's word. They're two alternatives, and we can know that one of them is right. We have the original reading, if, even if sometimes we can't determine for sure which of the two it is. No feature of Christian doctrine is at stake in this discussion at all. Variant readings in the manuscripts do not alter any basic teaching in the New Testament. Even the ones that deal with doctrine pertain to matters that are fully treated elsewhere in the Bible where the issue of genuineness is unobscured. This is true whether we're talking about the triunity of God in 1 John 5, 7 and 8. It's true whether we're talking about baptism into Christ in the 16th chapter of Mark. It's true no matter what subject we're talking about. None of these doctrines are in the least dependent on any passage about which there is any question to establish those doctrines. The foremost textual critics, the world-renowned critics of the text, widely recognized as the best in this discipline of poring over Greek manuscripts and analyzing these texts from the 1,300 years that we have to talk about here, their goal was to get back to what the inspired men wrote. They wanted to reconstruct the New Testament as it came from the Spirit of God. Now, yes, these kind of individuals can become distorted in their thinking and can come to wrong, wrong conclusions and end up rejecting the Bible like Bart Ehrman that we talked about yesterday has. But the people who study this have spoken decisively on this matter of whether any textual variant should cause us to have any doubt about the certainty of the, the New Testament. 
Bruce Besker died in 2007. He was among the very top textual critics in the history of the world. And he was a Greek scholar par excellence. He taught at Princeton Theological Seminary for 46 years. I mentioned that to you because yesterday I told you that Bart Ehrman lost his faith there. Meanwhile, we have Bruce Besker who was there all through nearly half a century. Here's what he had to say. Even if we had no Greek manuscripts today... By piecing together the information from these translations from a relatively early date, we could actually reproduce the contents of the New Testament. In addition to that, if we lost all the Greek manuscripts and the early translations, we could still reproduce the contents of the New Testament from the multiplicity of quotations in commentaries, sermons, letters, and so forth of the early church fathers. We've got so much evidence for the New Testament that we could lose massive sections of it and still be able to ascertain how the New Testament originally read. When people say the New Testament has 50,000 errors or 100,000 errors, that's misleading. It's misrepresenting reality. It's giving the impression that we have no idea what the Bible used to say. Bruce Mesker pointed out that if a single word is misspelled in 2,000 manuscripts, that is counted as 2,000 variants. So you see where these huge numbers come from, and they're relatively meaningless. Elias Bodenow served as the president of the Continental Congress for a while. When Thomas Paine wrote his Infidelic, the Age of Reason, Bodenow, in 1801, released The Age of Revelation. You know, when I was in KU at the Western Civilization Reading Program, they assigned us to read The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine, but nobody said anything about The Age of Revelation by Elias Bodenow. Go figure that Here's what Bodenow had to say. The facts upon which the Christian religion is founded have a stronger proof than any facts at such a distance in time, and the books which convey them down to us may be proved to be uncorrupted and authentic with greater strength than any other writings of equal antiquity. Benjamin Warfield, considered to be the last of the great Princeton theologians, died in 1921. He wrote... Such has been the providence of God in preserving for His church in each and every age competent, a competently exact text of Scripture that it is not only, in, it, not only is the New Testament unrivaled among ancient writings in the purity of its text as actually transmitted and kept in use, but also in the abundance of testimony which has come down to us for castigating its comparatively infrequent blemishes." The great mass of the New Testament, he said, has been transmitted to us with no or next to no variation. We could read, we could go on and on and on, as somebody said, the southern senator said. There's, there's so much of this in the people who have studied this the most. Richard Bentley died in 1742, the first Englishman to be ranked with the great heroes of classical learning, known for his literary and textual criticism. He said, the real text of the ancient, of the sacred writers does not now the real text of the sacred writers does not now, since the originals have been so long lost, lie in any single manuscript or edition, but is dispersed in all of them. That's why we're so glad we have all this manuscript evidence. The truth is dispersed throughout all of them. It is competently exact, even indeed in the worst manuscript now extant, nor is one article of faith or moral precept either perverted or lost in them. I want to conclude with what Sir Frederick Kenyon said. I quoted him earlier. But yesterday I began by telling you that you can take your Bible in your hand and know what you've got. And you can rely on it. You can stake your life 
on following it. Here's what Sir Frederick Kenyon said. This is not just me saying it. It's a man who spent his whole life studying these things. The Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true Word of God faithfully handed down from generation to generation throughout the centuries. Textual critics have succeeded in showing that the Bible in your hand does not differ substantially from the original. The vast majority of discordant readings have already been resolved long ago, many and most of them before anybody in this room was even born. Consequently, we've been brought to the firm conviction that we have in our possession the Bible as God intended. The Greek text has been authenticated. And even if the reading of a particular passage cannot be determined with certainty, the alternate readings are available, enabling us to know the possibilities and thus be aware of the original reading. Even in those cases where uncertainty may still exist, there's no point of salvation at stake. And the translation process works. You don't have to go to it in Arabic or any other language like some religions say. It's for every language and can be translated into any language. God knew that most of us would not know Greek and Hebrew. He knew that his word would be read in translation in the languages of the common people. The process of translation is sufficiently flexible for God's word to be adequately conveyed by uninspired, imperfect translators. All English translations have been made by uninspired, imperfect translators. Some English translations seek to advance a theological agenda. Some are deliberate perversions, especially in certain passages. But most translations do not differ in the essentials on how to be saved, how to stay saved, how to worship God, how to live the Christian life. Even a poor translation will tell you these things. 250 years before Christ, and I will conclude with this. 250 years before Christ, Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, the Septuagint. Most of the 68 quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament are from that Greek Bible instead of from the original Hebrew. Jesus and his apostles, when they quoted from the Old Testament, quoted the Greek translation rather than the original Hebrew. This is an implicit divine endorsement of the use of man-made translations. And the Septuagint really was a somewhat flawed translation. Therefore, our imperfect translations today, whether Spanish, Chinese, or English, are capable vehicles for carrying the Word of God to the people. The Bible is God's message to mankind. It is the sword of our warfare, the lamp to our feet, the light to life pathway, the source of true wisdom, and the textbook of ethics. Read it, believe it, love it, obey it, and it will lead you into the garden of God where the wealth of the eternal ages will be your portion. The invitation is extended this afternoon as we stand and sing.